There are lots of lousy businesses, and there's lots of wonderful businesses. It's the art and science of money. My job has been to try and figure out which is which. It's Hi-Fi Radio from the Global News Radio Studios in Toronto with Hi-Fi Portfolio Managers. Here's Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle. Welcome back. Hi-Fi Radio. Thank goodness it is Saturday. After the week we just had in the markets, Jack, we need a break. We really, really do. But the work never ends, and as such, we got a good show lined up for you just to help you make some sense of the volatile week that we had on the markets. We're going to start with a discussion about the industrial sector. Again, the three sectors that our strategist likes most are financials, industrials, and technology. So we don't speak very much about the industrials, but they do matter. And plus, Trump is going to have a military parade that the world can't wait to see. Ken Herbert's going to talk to us about that. We're then going to speak to our strategist, Tony Dwyer. I think he's in the Appalachians on a skidoo, but of course, he's paying very close attention to the markets and he's going to help us make sense of the messy week that we had and is it a buying opportunity or should we head for the hills tony's gonna help us with that we're gonna end it with a discussion on real estate yes not just equities and fixed income went lower so did real estate in toronto and so niels christensen is going to help us make sense of the real estate market but without further ado ken herbert i want to thank you this morning for joining us on hi-fi radio analyst with canaccord genuity Hi, good morning, Wolfgang. Good morning, Jack. How are you doing? Oh, we are doing a tough week we had, um, but I want to start with a point of levity. Uh, we ca- I caught on the elevator news. That's where I get my news when I ride the elevator in the ivory towers I work in. That uh, Mr. Donald Trump, President Trump, wants to have a military parade. I think he just came back from Paris, wasn't it? And he saw a similar type parade. He, he was so impressed with what they were doing in Paris. I think he wants to do one in Washington. So, yeah, get that military parade going. <laughs> Okay, so, um, Ken, how, how does this uh, uh, play into your space? Again, you cover uh, some defense stocks. You got Boeing under your uh, under your umbrella. Uh, you got uh, what else? Uh, is Hexel involved in, in uh, military uh, pr- production? Yeah, they certainly are. So let me just say that that I mean, the, uh, you know, seriousness aside, um, aside from the parade, you saw this week the the U.S. Congress and then the president signed. Uh, a spending agreement. So we've we've locked in a two-year agreement. They obviously still need to work out some of the details, but at elevated levels for defense spending in terms of double-digit growth. So uh, parade or no parade, I think it's a very good time to be bullish on defense stocks, uh, at least here in the United States. So we do have these elevated budget levels. I think the administration um, has clearly been fairly aggressive on what I would call short cycle spending, and that's addressing areas like readiness and training and, and what you need to do near term to get the aircraft and the ships and everything combat ready. We've certainly seen a step up in activity in certain parts of the Middle East, but then over the next one to two years, I think you really start to see the benefits of the inflated budget as it flows into areas around uh, technology insertion and and everything we try and do here in the United States to maintain the the uh, the gap relative to peers or near peers like China and Russia. So and within my university, right, Hexel has some defense exposure. Uh, Boeing, about you know 25 to 30 percent of their sales are defense, but. Specifically, uh, I really like some of the smaller cap stocks like Kratos Defense, KTOS, which has very significant exposure to areas like missile defense and unmanned vehicles, which are seeing uh, obviously a higher profile within the budget now and, and a higher share of the budget dollars. And then another company, Heiko, ticker HEI, which has a lot of exposure to short cycle defense, uh, smart munitions, uh, aircraft, areas like this that I think are clearly going to benefit under the new the new budget environment. So it is a uh, parade and, uh, you know, maybe we need a parade or maybe we don't need a parade, <laughs> but we're certainly seeing 
uh, elevated levels of defense spending, at least here in the United States, which I would argue is incrementally positive. It's, yeah. it's funny because you mentioned the, the gap that you have with the other countries. And uh, I think the U.S., um, next to the next top nine countries globally, they spend the same amount in terms of budget. So obviously getting that cycle going again it's uh, is massive for your sector. Jack, yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, $825 billion America spends on defense. On Social Security, they spend a trillion. So, well, I guess it's good that you spend a little bit more on Social Security than defense. But, well, you are the policeman of the world. They like it, dislike it, it is what it is. And I don't think anyone's going to really, really challenge you on that. I think that's really what Donald Trump wants to do. He wants to well, rebrand America. Not only great again, but also as the military might that it once was, or currently is, I should say. Uh, if you're just tuning in, by the way, to Hi Fire Radio, um, we are dealing with our good friend Ken Herbert, who is an industrial analyst, and just helping us cover off some of the military names. The, you know, the go-to stock that I always watch, and again, I've never owned it because I sort of find it akin to a tobacco stock, is Lockheed Martin. Um, I don't know how my clients would feel if I bought a military um, company, uh, but certainly the granddaddy of all is Lockheed Martin. Um, how, do you, how do you feel about Lockheed Martin? at these levels. I know you don't cover it, but you obviously have an opinion on it. Yeah, I mean, I think, so Lockheed, moving forward, right, is, is going to be very well associated and currently is with the Joint Strike Fighter, the F-35 aircraft. So um, I think there's clearly um, clearly pressure to, or, or you cost pressure near term on that program, and there's been some, some well-documented stories about some of the issues with, with readiness and getting the fleet that they've produced. Uh, combat ready and, and out into the field. Um, it is clearly over the next five to ten years probably the single, well by far the single largest program that the DOD plans to buy and will consume a very significant amount of the budget and the budget increase. It's, you know, the United States plans to buy about 22 to 2300 of these aircraft at over 100 million a pop. So, wow. And there are seven to eight uh, international customers, Canada obviously on the fence. Um, yeah, Canada, Canada actually pulled back on that one. It's been a big, big controversy up here in Canada. Yep. Exactly. So, so you may buy the F-18 instead from Boeing. But on the flip side, I think if you want to talk about, so let me just make two points. Clearly, um, part of this this near near peer and threat competitive environment with China and Russia, you know, it's hard to really appreciate how much of that is real versus how much of that is politics to support the higher defense spending, which there is very wide public support for now here in the United States. Um, and then second, Lockheed, I think you will certainly face pressure on the large program, but fundamentally, it's got a a very very strong management team. It's got a good portfolio of, of products in areas that are seeing budget increase. And I think if you are looking for exposure at a, at a, at a, at a large cap to a uh, large cap standpoint to um, defense spending in the United States and internationally, um, Lockheed would be certainly uh, at the top of the list. All right. Well, we're, we're on the line with Ken Herbert, analyst in the industrial space, speaking about some of the military names that he covers. We're going to pay some bills around here and get right back to Ken just after this. Don't go anywhere. There's more great show after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome back. Hi-Fi Radio on the line with Ken Herbert, analyst in aerospace and defense. Um, so uh, what type of people own uh, the likes of Boeing's? Again, you know, these, these are big priced stocks. Uh, and I go back even to Lockheed Martin. I don't think this is very retail owned. It's, it, my sense is it's primarily institutional, meaning held by pension funds, mutual funds, hedge funds. Uh, am I correct with that statement, Ken? 
Yeah, that's very correct. And I would say Boeing, I mean, you need to appreciate in the last uh, year with the move that the Boeing stock has had, it's it's the largest industrial stock right now. So it is very well hold, held by institutions. And you've seen a lot of um, institutional money flow into it as it's become incrementally more important in pretty much anybody's benchmark. And you've also had some scarcity uh, uh, value, give or take, around it as you've had clearly within other large cap industrials, um, uh, stocks like GE falling out of favor. So um, but very well institutionally held, and, and both here in the United States and then I would argue globally, as it's become such an important part of uh, pretty much anybody's benchmark. You know, GE's been an absolute dog. So, again, with the market uh, coming under some significant pressure now in the last couple of weeks, and we're in official correction mode with a Dow over, uh, off over 10% from its peak, um, is, is there any value in your space? Are you, are you starting to uh, froth a little bit at the lips there in terms of uh, names that you'd like to be, be getting long or advising your clients to get long, Ken? Yeah, certainly. So a couple I'd mention. One would certainly be Spirit Aerosystems, that's ticker SPR. So they are obviously primarily a supplier into Boeing uh, with, with a lot of exposure to the commercial aerospace build cycle. Their largest single program is the 737. They're only about 5% defense um, with other significant presence on the 787 and the A350 into Airbus. So the uh, company's got a, a very unlevered balance sheet with really nice capital deployment uh, optionality. I think you're seeing a growing free cash flow profile. Um, you've got uh, management, the CEO that came from GE a couple of years ago and was running a big piece of their aircraft uh, engine business. So you've got a very strong management team. That's a, that's a stock I like for anybody that really wants exposure to the commercial original equipment cycle, specifically Boeing, and it is trading at a significant discount to Boeing, so I think it's, uh, from a bargain standpoint, a relative standpoint, it's very attractive. Mm -hmm. And what else? Uh, second, what I want to mention, um, not as much of at a, at a discount, but if you want after exposure to the commercial aftermarket, and that's uh, where, an area where we've seen real specific strength, there's, there's two stocks I'd mention. One would be Transdime, ticker TDG. Uh, trades right now maybe a little bit of a premium to the market, but they generate, they do aircraft parts and then service, but they make all of their money selling these parts into the aftermarket. Um, uh, very good company. And then the second one I will mention, a stock I just upgraded this week, it's much smaller, but ticker AIR, the company is AAR, and they are primarily an aftermarket services provider. So they do maintenance work on aircraft and engines, they distribute parts, they do a lot of parts trading. So about, again, two-thirds of their revenues are into the commercial aftermarket and a much higher percentage of their profits. So if you want exposure to the fact that the airlines, you know, rec record yields, record profitability at the airlines, very good, at least through now, knock on wood, discipline on capacity expansion, and you're continuing to see above sort of historical growth in passenger traffic, obviously here in North America and in Europe, but then importantly in, in Middle East and Asia and other emerging markets, uh, exposure to the companies that are keeping these aircraft flying like Transdime and, and AIR, I view as uh, relatively attractive as well right now. If you're just tuning into Hi-Fi Radio, we're on the line with Ken Herbert. He's an analyst covering aerospace defense. He covers basically the industrial sector for Canaccord. And, uh, well, industrials is something that we don't talk a lot about, and Jack and I thought it'd be appropriate to bring you on the show uh, today uh, to help us out just to get a little more diversity in a portfolio. Uh, but uh, I want to throw it back over to Jack now. Yeah, one of the things about uh, the industrials is that you talk about or you hear about the the short cycle and long-term cycle and i think it's the long cycle and those contracts that give you a lot of stability in these turbulent markets i just wonder if you maybe talk to the you know the listeners about that ken on how they do have these long-term spending cycles and uh you know they do provide stability to these industrials good point 
Uh, certainly. So, so when you think long cycle, I think commercial aerospace and the build cycles for Boeing and Airbus will define long cycle. So right now, Boeing's got at least on the 737 and the 787, you know, over five years of backlog. And the 737, it's up to seven and eight years of backlog. So these are airlines that are, you know, airlines tend to plan from a fleet standpoint out five to seven years because these are such high capital um, uh, investments. And it takes a significant amount of planning and financing to to plan a fleet and its growth. So you've got phenomenal visibility on on for a company like Boeing and then of course a lot of their suppliers as you look at the build rates and of course with global traffic and with global demand and specifically emerging market growth it's given really strong support to that backlog which gives again a very very long cycle uh, of view and, and a backlog that supports a very sort of longer cycle investment horizon obviously on the flip side the aftermarket where you're dealing with airlines that spend on maintenance of the airplanes tend to be tends to be thought of as an example of a shorter cycle because that's something you know their maintenance schedules can change as their capacity changes on a, on a more you know quarter to quarter basis as you see fluctuations in demand or or traffic there yeah you can we got about a minute left here uh, i want to ask you because bombardier had the a little C bit series, yeah. the, the c series they had some challenges with of course your president donald trump um protecting, of course, your jobs that he wants to do so desperately. So in, in terms of free trade, in terms of Bombardier, uh, is it relatively smooth flying now Bombardier, or do they got some uh, hurdles in front of them? Um, well, you're still to get the final details on, on the recent ruling, which, which effectively overturned all the penalties that the Department of Commerce tried to impose on Bombardier, specifically with their sale to Delta. So I think the skies have cleared considerably now for Bombardier from that standpoint. And then, of course, with the agreement with Airbus and the fact that they will eventually start to assemble the C-Series, it looks like, in the United States and Alabama, um, I think are, are incredibly good moves for Bombardier. And, and I think the, the skies have certainly cleared uh, considerably relative to a lot of the turbulence from six months ago. And I think a lot of the trade issues, obviously politics, and I think Boeing, uh, perhaps the perception in the United States is they perhaps overplayed their hand a little bit, and you might see Boeing reply, respond with obviously some some cooperation or joint venture with Embraer that they're pursuing. But I think Bombardier clearly has come out of this uh, better than people certainly thought they would have three to six months ago. Yeah, you know, you know I'm going to end with this amazing. What's the value of, of Boeing's latest fleet of planes? And they've got a couple hundred million bucks to buy one of those puppies. Uh, it all depends on the aircraft, but sure, you know, you're going to start at, at 40 to 50 million all the way up to a few hundred million for some of the largest aircraft, yeah. Wow. And how long would they keep that plane in the air? Well, so it's been coming down a little bit, but the but typically most of these aircraft are going to be in use for between 20 to 30 years. Wow. And because they ultimately end up, I, I would say, in, in, in sort of third world countries. Uh, at the end, you know, small little airlines that can't afford a new fleet, they end up buying these old planes and just keep surfacing them, which obviously feeds well into your parts theses. Uh, Ken, a real pleasure to have you on the air with us, Hi-Fi Radio. Ken Herbert, analyst covering off aerospace and defense for Canaccord. Coming up next, we are going to talk strategy with our good friend Tony Dwyer, sort of from Wall Street. I think he's in the Appalachians on a skidoo, but he made some time for us this morning to share with us the week that was and the week that will be right after this. Let's take a break. But after, Wolf and Jack will continue their in-depth discussion about money. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.
I had to wait for it. Hi-Fi Radio, Wolfgang Klein, your host, Jack Hartle, producer, co-host, and great guy all around. Uh, we have Tony Dwyer on the line. Uh, he was supposed to be in New York. He took the day off. Well, he's allowed to. It's Saturday, I guess. He's in the Adirondacks. He's on a, uh, what kind of a sled do you have out there in the Adirondacks there, Tony? A fast one, Wolfie. A fast one. But, but you want to buy a ski-doo, otherwise known as a bombardier. In fact, Canadians invented the sled, my good friend. You know that, don't you? I, I love it. Love it. That a boy. Oh, it's been a tough week, man. All downhill. Gee whiz. That, uh, you know, I know sliders like to actually go uphill. It's more fun. But, uh, well, the market went downhill this week. And it's been pretty tough, Tony. Uh, I don't know. Wolfgang's shaken, not stirred. I get stirred at the end of the move. And that's when I capitulate. But So I'm shaken, not stirred. Uh, Jack's got the steady hand. And when I spoke with you yesterday, you said, Wolfie, you got to do a little buying in here. That's why you raised some cash a couple of months ago. Correct. That is exactly right. See, that the funny problem that, that the listeners might feel um, or identify with, corrections, when, when the market's going up, it's very easy to call for corrections because you don't have to deal with it. it you know, so I like to say <laughs> corrections only feel natural, normal, and healthy until you actually get one. And when you get one, by definition, it feels like something more significant, something more sustainable. Um, and this one, you know, maybe it was kicked off by some of the volatility ETNs, but ultimately it came down, it, it came down to two things, Wolfie. It came down to there was far too much investor optimism coming into this year. I mean, you were on top of a 20% year, and then you kicked it up another notch with a 7.5% start straight up without a pullback. So you had investor sentiment was way too positive, and you had absolutely no fear of the Fed. When I look back at times when, uh, as measured by the monetary policy uncertainty index that the Fed puts out, that's historically low. So historically high optimism coupled with historically low fear of the Fed bred risk-taking that was inappropriate as it relates to volatility, and obviously that came home to roost. So, Tony, now this is a complicated story, and I don't know if anyone truly understands, but I know if anyone can get close to the, the truth, it's you. So, volatility. Uh, there was an ETF, a derivative that was created. I guess hedge funds were betting that uh, volatility would decrease after a historically monstrous decrease of volatility. They Not kept play, play, pressing that trade. And, and at the same time, I guess they were going long the low vol market. So they were, they were, they were shorting volatility, they were going long the market, and they got crushed both ways. How big do you think that trade was? And what kind of um, uh, contagion uh, risk uh, is, is the world facing with it? I, Wolfie, I, I wish I was um, smart enough to know. I know it's in the billions, and if you take leverage on that, it's probably the multi-billions, but a lot of that has already come out because it happens very quickly. Um, it happens in a day or two or three. It doesn't happen over the course of a couple of months. What it has done is it created investor fear, so now you're having actual you know, risk-taking uh, is being scaled back a little bit. But also I, I want to say and, and make sure the listeners understand, this was an exchange-traded um, note not an exchange-traded fund. It wasn't an ETF that created this kind of volatility. It was an exchange-traded note, which is a derivative-based product that, frankly, if you, if you had a gun to my head and asked me what it was, I'm going to get shot. Right. Yeah, but it was a bunch of futures is what it was, I understand, the reset and the complexity behind it uh, and the and movement in the market caused it to implode. I think that that instrument, the, the, now there's a Canadian instrument as well that Horizons has created. I don't know if it's similar or the same as the American product. Well, well I think when we, you know, we could get into it for a long time, but I think the more important point here, Wolf and Jack, is I think what we want to do is, is talk about 
Not why it's, it's happened. It doesn't matter. It did. We want to talk about what it means. And when I look back historically, when you get this kind of drop from a new 52-week high, so we measured this through our, our, our partner, Jason Goford at SentimentTrader.com. And basically, we looked for times where you had a two-month increase of 4% to a new uh, 52-week high in the, in the S&P 500. So two months, up 4% to a 52-week high. And then you erased it all in seven days, which we did. When you look at that data, it's happened six prior times. It's a human nature extreme. So even though it's only six times, I think it's relevant because it's such a human nature extreme where you get this consistent lift up and then you get a crush just like we've had. You've been up two, three, and 12 months later every single time by a, uh, a median of 7% and 20% respectively. Right. Three and, so and that's, that's off the you bottom, know, Tony? I think you have to sit back and just kind of you know, take it all in. Is, is that off the bottom, those numbers that you're talking about there, Tony? It's off of the February 5th level, which is like 2650-ish, I, I think. All right, we got okay. Tony Dwyer on the line. He's our chief strategist with Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. We've had a very volatile week. Uh, Tony is trying to uh, help us calm our way through this and make sense and get set up for next week. And again, I'm always fearful when retail reads the headlines over the weekend, they wake up Monday morning after a couple of down weeks and they do the, uh, they do the incorrect but natural feeling thing, and that is to sell the open on a Monday. And I'm going to dissuade people from doing that. I hope Tony can help you do just that, is stay calm and relax, and we're going to get through this mess. But going to pay some bills around here. Going to come right back to Tony Dwyer right after this. Listen, we're going to take a break. But when we come back, more money talk. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Welcome back, Hi-Fi Radio, Wolfgang Klein, your host, Jack Hartle, producer of the show, co-host of the show, Tony Dwyer, our chief strategist at Canaccord Genuity, is on the line helping us make sense of the year that has been, and I can say the year began with uh, cryptocurrency imploding, followed by marijuana stocks getting smoked, and then, of course, the broad S&P 500 and the Dow Jones. Well, the Dow definitely into corrective territory. And actually, coming up next, our next guest is going to talk about the correction in the real estate market. Yes, real estate, friends, goes down as well. Uh, but why you call your equity broker, not your real estate broker on corrections? That's doesn't, price I, daily. I, I don't understand. That's price daily. Uh, how's their price annually? Anyways, but it's true, eh, Tony? In terms of real estate correction, the, the agents don't get the same type of phone calls that I get from my clients, which caused me then to call you, uh, my, my, my life. <laughs> well, God, Apple I guess friend. they're fortunate, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess. So, so, Tony, what are we? How many days into this little corrective phase are we? And because the, the, the work I sent you shows that you know, with such quick, rapid downdrafts, in other words, the market went up escalator, down elevator, uh, about twenty days of, of downward pain that we've seen the last decade. Because every year in the last decade, we've had one of these basically each and every year. So here we are in two thousand eighteen, having it early in the season. But how, how much lower do you think the market goes, and how much more? time do we have to endure the pain for? I, I think um, you're going to have to withstand quite a bit of volatility over the next couple of weeks. I think um, most of the damage has been done. It's, 
inappropriate, I think, Wolfie, for you or I to give a low point because it's an emotional thing and you don't know. What I do know is that our view is that investors should add some money into the financials, into tech, and industrial sectors. Try to not look at the next two weeks with the knowledge that the fundamental backdrop remains very, very sound, even with the recent higher rates. And, you know, ultimately, it's very important that people remember that the market follows the direction of earnings. So if, the, if earnings are going up, the markets are going up. And the earnings are going to be up double digits this year. So unless you think there's going to be a multiple contraction that's significant and sustainable, which would be unique, then you've got to expect that prices to be higher by the end of the year from current levels. Right. Well, it's Tony Dwyer, our chief strategist with Canaccord. You know, Jack's got a couple of questions for you, my friend. Yeah, Tony, you touched on interest rates. Uh, the 10-year rising, I think it's about 2.85 now. Um, what are you seeing in the fixed income market? Because that typically you know, leads the equity market, but I think this time yeah. it's a little bit different. Well, it's it's more interesting, Jack. You're getting after, and even in 2007 it was the case where the market, the credit market, actually kind of moves now with the equity market it, because it's it's so overvalued. It it became a risk asset, not a defensive asset. Right. So what what you've seen is in the last two weeks, credit was fine, 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 and then all of a sudden it looked over at stocks and said, okay, maybe I'm not so fine. And credit investors started to sell a little bit. But again, you, you have a fundamental concern when companies and people don't have access to money. Today, I mean, outside, even today, even on the worst day in, I don't know, how many couple of years, if you call the bank, you're going to get money. They're not going to be that freaked out because the credit market is still open. So um, long-winded answer, Jack, but credit is reacting to stocks. That's not what happens when you're in trouble. I was going to say, normally what you'd, ha- you'd see, and I think you saw it in 2008, right? When you have a crisis or when you have an economic you know, um, issues out there, uh, the long bond should be coming down, and it's rising. So it's kind of odd um, in this well, circumstance. It's the craziest thing in the world. I mean, the way that the fixed income market is traded, it's, you know, I, I get credit for the good calls. Let's take credit for the bad ones. I can't believe. I've been wrong on bonds for a while. I can't believe that they've stayed as low in yield as they have. It's become a risk asset, like you said. But they, a, they become over They are bond. The bond market, in so, my estimation, is more risky than the equity market here. Yeah, no, we, we've 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 mentioned that a few times on air, and a number of our, our guests have said the same thing. But Tony, let us let's speak about this. Can the stock market rise as interest rates rise? Yeah, that's what happens. The the thing you got to be worried about is when what happens when Jack's point. You're in trouble when the 10-year yields are going down and the corporate bond yields are going up. That's, that's when, you know, it's called credit spread. The corporate credit spreads are widening. Then you're in trouble. Right now it's the opposite, right? Right, right now you've got the opposite. Yeah. The 10-year note yield's going up. It, yeah. it steepens the yield curve. It, it gives banks more incentive, not less incentive well, they've, to they've, lend. They've held in quite well, actually, the financials in this crisis, and maybe that's part of the reason. Yeah, sure. but, but interest rates go up because you have a strong economy. And if you have a strong economy, earnings go up. And as Tony said, uh, the, the correlation of the market and the direction of earnings. Yeah, the, the issue is when you have inflation, uh, real fears of inflation, and maybe the 10 years up over 4% or 5%, where that's when yeah. you get the choke off. On the guys, guys, I got to tell you, we're all the way up to where we were last year. <laughs> the 10-year note yield. Right. You've had bigger moves in rate of change for both the inflation expectations and the 10-year note yield. Yeah. So to make this an interest rate-driven thing is inappropriate. This was an investor sentiment-driven thing where volatility expectations were too sustainably low, investor sentiment was too positive, and fear of Fed was too low. And, and yeah, now the weekends are getting shaken out. 
Yes. But you know, I, 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 opportunity for the listeners. You know, but it is amazing because sentiment. Jack even said to me this morning, you know, that all the charts now look bad, but you won't really know the turn because it's driven now by sentiment. So human, fear and greed, human right. psychology, and fear and greed. Exactly right. That's but again, right. what 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 completely dazzled me in the last six months was the movement in cryptocurrency. If you speak about risk appetite, you couldn't get more of it in crypto anywhere else in the world. So uh, I, I think it was a telltale sign for things to come as it began to roll over. Tony Dwyer, real pleasure to have you, our chief strategist at Canaccord Genuity. You are a strong hand, you're a good hand, and you're a helping hand when we need you, my good friend. Well, thanks for the kind words, and have a great day, guys. You too, my friend. All right, folks. Well, yes, real estate prices do correct as well. So I encourage you, call your broker and ask him how much your price has changed. And, oh, my God, should you sell your house? Of course, the answer is no. But Niels Christensen and his son, Evan Christensen, of the Christensen Realty Group are going to help us make sense of the housing market right after this. Making money is the best. So how do you make more money? Come on back after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I love it. That's for you, Niels. Hey, it's your generation. You love that song. A little funk. Niels Christensen. Cool in the gang. Was that who it was? Was that Cool in the Gang? Cool in the Corey, Gang. Was that Cool in the Gang? Commodore. Commodore. That's what I thought. Yeah, yes. Oh, well, you know, you know real estate better than music. It's uh, <laughs> Niels Christensen, your son Evans Christensen of the Christensen Real Estate Group. That sounds big. Sounds real big. That's good. Uh, Niels, uh, you've been uh, involved in the Toronto real estate market now for how long? Since 1986. Since 1986, eh? Uh, so, uh, 2017, we saw some softness in, I'm going to say we saw some softness in the real estate market. Uh, Jack boots on the ground after he counts oil rigs for me. He's checked some prices out in the Aurora region. This is going to be an <laughs> indication of the 905 uh, marketplace. And uh, Jack said, well, prices are down. Uh, so They were definitely down off peak, but I think the, the media really sensationalizes things too. So, that's an uh, important thing to consider. Oh, they do. You know, they, all week long, they're speaking about the Dow Jones having its historic historic drop this week of over a thousand points a thousand points is three percent so that's not a historic down drop but on a point basis it is but let's get down to the brass tacks here why i brought you into the studio because uh you know in our business neils when price is correct of the stock market because you call me and said, so, well price are down uh, a little concerned here what's what's up uh but yet real estate when it moves five six seven eight percent and it does uh on a bad month in a bad political environment i don't think clients call you up and oh and, and, yeah they do well i don't call them saying neils help me reset the price of my house. No, but you're not selling, but clients that are on the market, uh, they get concerned about and they call us too. But here's the deal. Uh, you know, I, I find that our market right now is a market still trying to find its feet. Uh, the media gets all over this. You know that the prices are going down and so on. In some areas, they are. It's neighborhood specific in the GTA. But um, what we've enjoyed over the past number of years is not a normal market. You know, I think we had gains of about 19% there one year. Um, uh, ridiculous. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, uh, the the home prices uh, in 2017 were up 12.7% yeah. from 2006, but the volume uh, in the first part of uh, this year, January 8, 2018, over 2017, are down 22%. But prices are still up. I was telling Jack on the way in, uh, everybody's talking about the you know the, the 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 dearth of the market. We were on a on an offer last night where it uh, in 
Kipling and Rathburn area in Etobicoke, little bungalow, uh, eight ninety nine asking price, sold over a million dollars, seven offers on it. So, a tear know, a tear down. No, 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 no. A very dated uh, bungalow uh, where the lady had lived in it for 63 years, but there's a big demand still for specific so neighborhoods. The, 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 I think like blue, blue chip stocks. Wow. And they went for how much? Over a million dollars. And so the size of the lot? Uh, 50 by 110, something like that. And a, a basic Etobicoke bungalow, 1,100 square feet. Seven people uh, lined up to buy it. I'd say Neil's had a good point there. I mean, you, you end up paying a premium for a premium location in real estate, and you see the same thing in the stock market. We just had uh, Ken Herbert on talking about Boeing. Those type of stocks that have the predictable earnings, they demand the high multiples, and the, a multiple is simply what you'll, you're willing to pay for the stability of uh, earnings. So, so the average price of the house in Toronto uh, was $736,000 in January, which is down 4% from January of 2017, which yeah, doesn't really sound that bad to me. I know that, but they use the GTA, right? It's a big area. If you look at uh, uh, certain neighborhoods, there are certain neighborhoods that have fallen off the price. Uh, from last year. Other neighborhoods, uh, there's no inventory. Even though uh, inventory has risen 17% this month, sorry, January, over last year. Inventory so, has. Yeah, we have we have more inventory, but it's still in certain neighborhoods, in your neighborhood, my neighborhood, there's, there, there's, there's a there's lack no of inventory and a lot of buyers. Yeah. Well, look, again, I can say the same thing to you. You know, the Dow Jones of the S&P 500, the TSX, is a big, broad place, uh, which is correcting this year. But there are pockets of optimism as well. But, you know, at the end of the day, the average price does matter. Um, let's speak about the lending standards, because really, much of this is government... Um, uh, government-induced, for in- sure. Induced is the right word, yeah. I call uh, it government interference, actually. Well, the, I would say the first thing that they did back in the spring of last year, uh, the, the, the homeowners, they, uh, they knocked down the price with that 15-step plan or the 15 um, plan that they implemented. Mm -hmm. And then now in 2018, they've gone to to the people looking to buy the houses and implemented more regulation on lending. So net-net, anyone looking to buy a house or anyone looking to sell a house, they're in a tougher situation now than they were probably a year ago, I think. Absolutely. And we saw, I mean, Evan uh, deals a lot with the downtown condo market and a younger buyer, if you will. And a lot of those people that were qualified uh, to buy, they they jumped into the market in order to meet the new uh, stress tests and the lending. Is that what you were finding, Evan? Or? Are, you, are you speaking about the the rush before yeah. January? Yeah. yeah. A ton of people are calling me, you know, the first week of December, running out and buying as much as they, they pretty much could before those new lending rules came in. So Would those people qualify under the new rules if they were looking to buy uh, a place now? They would qualify less. They you know Maybe they were looking right. for a home, and now they're going into a condo or townhouse. Well, look, Toronto home prices have come under some pressure. Uh, Niels Christensen, Evans Christensen of the Christensen Real Estate Group are in studio to help us make some sense of home prices, but we got to pay some bills around here, my good friends, so stay tuned, and uh, we will be right back with the Christensen Real Estate Group right after this. Stay with us. There's more shows still to come. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Hi-Fi Radio, a show about money, high finance, high fashion every now and then. We're going to incorporate some real estate into the show today. We have the Christensen Real Estate Group in the house, the brick house. House, of course, entertainment, I guess it is, uh, Global News 640 in Toronto. Uh, Evan Christensen, you're the son of Niels Christensen. Uh, So you focus on the condo market, which is, I think, very, very smart. Uh, Your dad 
deals with guys like me, the old guys, and you deal with the youth. Uh, so condom market, uh, again, every time we have Brad Lamb on in, in the studio, says there still is no supply. Uh, if there's no supply, that tells me prices should have remained relatively firm. Have condos come under pressure the same way um, uh, real estate in terms of houses, single, single family attached homes have come under pressure? What do you what do you mean in terms of Pr- pricing pressure? pressure in terms price of price, well, yeah. condos are up fourteen percent from uh, last year, so they're they're outperforming the detached homes right now. Um, huge huge demand uh, again, multiple offers, seeing ten fifteen offers on condos downtown. I have a lineup of about ten buyers that are looking for you know perfect condos right now uh, to suit their needs, and there's nothing out there. So, so condos up in price. I say, Evan, when you're looking at these condos and you're showing yeah. them to the prospective buyers. Are they families or are they young single people, young, young couples? Yeah, young um, execs, young couples, um, people getting out of the rental market, jumping into the first-time buyer market. Do, so, you, do you see any families moving into these types um, of condos, like a three-bedroom type y- condo or something you like that? You know what? That? There's such a lack of supply of the three-bedroom condos that it rarely passes through. Um, yeah. You'll get the Very odd person. I guess. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, what the v- developers are, are building are 600-square-foot condos. You can't put a family into that, right? So. <laughs> no. Incredible, incredible. So, so guys, what do you think the opportunities are in the real estate market right now? Is, is it in the condo market, uh, or is it actually in, again in the uh, single detached home from market? From an investment perspective, yeah, yeah, from a longer term investment perspective, I, I'm going to think it's in hard land because I always say you can always build another condo, but obviously yeah. not. Brad Lamb was the other way; it's just too difficult to get permitting and the likes. Well, and I think uh, you know I follow Brad Lamb and what he uh, and he's a very knowledgeable guy about the condominium market has been for years, and what he says is true. Uh, the city makes it very difficult for developers to build. Uh, there's an absence as a, of good inventory and uh, there's a huge demand. Uh, you know, it, it, Toronto is similar to a way geographically as Vancouver in that we're constrained on development. Can't go north, right? So, and uh, I, 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 listen, I've called the condo market wrong for the last 10 years and Evan has proved me wrong many times because I specialize basically in Etobicoke, but um, the stress test that Jack talked about earlier, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think that a lot of people were jumping into real estate ownership last year, leveraged to the eyeballs, and it's not a good thing. And you look to the, what happened in the States, and a lot of people found themselves uh, underwater on their mortgages and, and uh, out of a house, right? But, so, but the new stress test, no matter how much you put down, you still have to qualify based on an, an income metric. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. So if someone's putting down 60%, they still have to qualify as if they were only doing 5% down? Is that right? Um, not exactly right, but what happens is, is that it, it, it speaks to people's level of affordability. When people say, I can afford this and I want X for that, it's, it's sort of corrected their um, expectation, if you will. Right. They have to accept uh, uh, a little bit more constraint on what they're buying. Sure. Well, well for a while, what? I think it's been the, the greater fool theory in, uh, in Canada with the real estate market. You know, I'll put 5% down, leverage it up. And then hopefully someone will buy it from me at a higher price down the road. And if they do, maybe I'll even leverage up more next time. Right. So, so that's my question because I want to ask you then: uh, What do you find is the average down payment? And and are people making that on their own, or how much? Of those, how many of those individuals are actually getting help from their parents or grandparents? Do you believe? Well, I know it's anecdotal, but again, I'm curious. My, my market is different from everyone. What What are you finding? You finding uh, parental help in uh, first time? Yeah, buyers? big time. Um, I'm you finding are. a lot of people are getting gifts of money. It's, uh, in my opinion, it's almost the only way to afford getting into the market right now is if you have you know some help somewhere or if somebody's very prudent and saved a lot of money over a lot of time it's it's a big down payment so the, but down. let me ask you the profile of your of your, of your clientele yep. then evan uh age income down payment and purchase price yeah so i grew up in etobicoke um a lot of the people that are, are buying are from etobicoke moving downtown or that i've met through um i guess my my community downtown 
Um, average income is probably 80 to 100 mm-hmm. um, plus. You yep. know, some guys are making much, much more money than that. Mm-hmm. And age is uh, anywhere between 26 and 40 I'm kind of working with mm-hmm. right now. So. And, and, and purchase price and down payment? Purchase price are so looking at around half a million to some people over a million and a half. Mm-hmm. And, and, and down payment? Down payment, usually around 20%. They're putting down 20. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if they were to then under $500,000, they put 20, that's 100. Mm-hmm. They borrow 400. To borrow 400 is costing you on a monthly basis about what? Uh, 1800 bucks a month, guys, you figure? On four, yeah. Yep. Sound about right? Yep. Sounds about right. And then, and then your condo fees on that would be how much a month? Approximately five, six hundred. Yeah, yeah. So you're, you're to, to carry that condo is going to cost you twenty five hundred, twenty six hundred bucks. And how many square feet would you get for that five hundred grand? I'm going to say five hundred, six hundred feet. Area. Um, yeah, you're looking at about eight hundred to nine hundred on average a, a square foot. So enough room, enough room to swing a cat. Yeah. All right. <laughs> that was the Evans, uh, the Christensen Real Estate Group. Uh, Niels Christensen, a longstanding friend of mine, my own broker, and his son Evan Christensen. If you're interested in condo, they, Evan focuses downtown, and if you want to live in the burbs where there's Birds and Trees, uh, call Niels Christensen of the Christensen Real Estate Group. I'll say that one more time. The Christensen Real Estate Group. Dot CA. <laughs> Dot CA. Great, great, great brokers. They know this stuff, and they're ethical and honest and hardworking. Jack Hartle, always a pleasure to have you in my studio. And Courtney, our producer, did a very, very fine job queuing up that brick house for us this weekend on Hi-Fi Radio. Speak with you next week. Listening to Hi Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle, portfolio managers at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. For questions about today's show or any money questions you need answered, email Wolf and Jack at WolfgangKlein.com. Hi Fi Radio, for the love of money. We'll see you next week.